I invite you to take your Bible, please, and come with me to the book of Jude, which is, in our English Bibles, strategically placed to let us know that throughout the age in which we live, there is a constant spiritual battle going on. Standing just before the book of Revelation, it's as if Jude is there to show us what it's going to be like until the Lamb of God is revealed. Christ in this age is building His church, and wherever He does His work, Satan seeks to discredit it, to undermine it, to sully its reputation, and to try to discourage those whom Jesus saves. Satan works primarily through spreading false doctrine and by infiltrating every place that there is a fellowship of God's people in a manifestation of his church in any locale. Jesus, I'm sorry, Jude rather, stands tall to help us be strong for the battle and to remain faithful until we are with Christ. Now the particular kind of unbeliever that Jude is talking about is not the atheist, not the cult leader, not the member of a, of a different world religion or something like that. No, he's talking about the person who doesn't mind associating with the church who is willing to openly profess to believe in Christ and is therefore difficult, sometimes impossible, to distinguish from a Christian. Now we've been doing a little series on the Bible postcards, the one-page books of the Bible, and Jude is the finale, and we have scheduled seven visits to Jude. It's a pithy little page in your Bible. Today is visit number four, and I want to take a running start at our text for this morning by reading what we've seen in our first three visits to this letter. Here's Jude 1 through 7. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal life. The first words of our passage for today in verse 8 are, yet in the same way. In other words, there's a connection here. Those horrible examples of, uh, of God's righteous judgment on wicked men and wicked angels even um, set the pattern. And we're to understand that pattern so we recognize it and so we make sure that we are not in that pattern. So we're going to dive back into our text and uh, soon you'll see why our title is Hidden Reefs. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13. Hidden reefs in your love feast. We will see old sins with new techniques in verses 8 through 10, and then woe to them in verses 11 through 13. So start with verse 8, old sins, new techniques. Yet in the same way, these men, what men? The ones who have crept in unnoticed, the infiltrators, also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. So in the same way makes the connection. There's a comparison between the examples he just used that we saw last week and the spiritual counterfeits that Jude was writing about in the first century which continue to this day. So to apply the passage, notice in verse 7 there was in the same way. There it's, in the Greek, it's an adjective. In verse 8, it's an adverb, in the same way. A direct connection between the false teachers in the first century of the New Testament era, the perversions of Sodom and Gomorrah, the perversions of the sons of God from Genesis 6, and the judgment of God on His own people. The point is that the same God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the same God who imprisoned rebellious angels forever, the same God that kept an entire generation from seeing the promised land, is the God with whom we have to do. The same activities and attitudes performed today will reap the same judgment from God. Don't be fooled. Be on the alert. Don't be calloused or numbed to it. And don't be naive. Now comes before us a a string of vivid descriptions of the false teachers. I've had the same experience twice when translating parts of the New Testament. I did just great going through 1 Peter, and I got into 2 Peter, and I was loving it all, and I got through chapter 1 of 2 Peter, and then I got to chapter 2 of 2 Peter, which is quite parallel to Jude, because Peter was predicting it, and Jude said, uh, it's here. And I was translating this, and I was kind of feeling good about myself. You know, I can, I can pretty much sight read this stuff. I hit that chapter, and I thought, what's that word? What's that word? What's that word? Both Peter and Jude, to describe these false teachers, stretched and strained their vocabulary and pulled some words out that occur nowhere else in the Bible. They were exercised about this. Well, notice what he says. 
In the same way these men, by dreaming, that's the first description of them. That means that they imagine things to be true that are not. They take the real for the unreal and the unreal for the real. Or to use Isaiah's terminology from Isaiah 5, they call evil good and good evil. And what they think is revelation from God is not. You know, false teachers almost always claim to have some kind of special information from God that nobody else has. They might say it came by dreams or by visions or automatic writing. That's where a a demon takes over a person and writes things that usually become religious bestsellers because they're lies or mystical impressions. God just told me this was so. And even some cases, um, drug use induces alleged revelation from God. Well, what they actually do following their dreams is they defile the flesh, the next description of them. False doctrine always goes hand in hand with bad practice. And once you turn from God's word, moral restraints tend to drop by the wayside quite quickly. The next description is that they reject authority. That means that they deny God's word, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints that we've already seen here. And then he says they revile angelic authorities or revile angelic majesties. You'll see different translations of that in different um, different renderings of that word in different English translations. That's more difficult to understand. The truth is the word angelic The Greek word angelic isn't in this passage. The Greek word authorities isn't in this passage. The Greek word majesties isn't in this passage. It's literally glories. And it's used in a very unusual way for the word glory. Um, Or glorious ones, you might say. It's almost certainly a a reference to angels. They are very prominent in the context. And This particular brand of false teacher at that time claimed things were true of angels that were not, like they were created beings. Or when we've studied Colossians, we've seen how there was this uh, idea that different angels represented different sort of levels of knowledge through which you had to climb and work your way to get to God. A lot of perversion of that. Uh, There was a modern version of this aberrant doctrine. There is a modern version of this aberrant doctrine. Uh, It's the idea that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you should give orders to angels or demons. Don't pay attention to people who tell you that you should rebuke Satan or demons or that you should converse with them. I've had a Uh, a man who used to live in Boise, who um, considered himself a Christian counselor, who claimed to have spoken with demons through demon-possessed people, and he would ask them questions about churches and people. He said, you should hear what they said about you. No, I shouldn't. And you shouldn't be talking to them. And do you understand that absolutely anything they tell you is a lie? Because the 
they are the father of lies. So don't let people tell you that. Don't, people tell, don't let people tell you you should try to bind Satan or that you as a Christian need to be delivered from demons by certain rituals or special prayers or any other method. That's part of the false teaching that goes way back to the, to the first century. Verse 9 gives you a hint how the holy angels actual, actually feel. Look at verse 9. This is, this is kind of strange. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now what happened there? Well, the archangel Michael, one of the two holy angels in the Bible whose name is given, Michael and Gabriel, those are the only two. If anybody else claimed to know, claims to know the name of another angel, run away. That's a, that is a false teacher who is dreaming up things. Well, Michael had a dispute with the devil himself over the body of Moses. You remember reading about that in the Old Testament? If you do, we got to have a talk. It's not there. This is one of those fascinating places where you have something in the Bible referring to something that happened thousands of years before, and this is the only thing we know about it. So don't speculate. We have plenty of cults. We don't need to start a new one about um, Michael and the devil. But here's the point. The false teachers held aberrant views of angels and apparently a very exalted view of themselves as evidenced by thinking that they could give orders or condemnations to angels and demons. They believed they were superior to these glorious ones, these angels, and they could therefore order them around or or denounce them. We know nothing about that. And speculation won't help. We have everything that we need to know for life and godliness about that, which is don't pretend to talk to angels. Okay? That is absolutely forbidden. Now, what's the point of that verse? Well, respect your spiritual enemies. It doesn't say that Michael didn't realize he was up against a formidable opponent in, in Satan. But let God deal with those enemies. You work on obeying God. And when you hear a teaching that tells you to give orders to an angel or a demon or to listen to them, you're hearing from a false teacher. Just, just get away. There was a spate of the modern version of this error that blew through American evangelicalism. It was a very strong gust of a wind of doctrine about 25 or 30 years ago. It, it came under the label spiritual warfare, and there was the spiritual warfare movement. It was loaded with false notions about seeking out and confronting demons, mystical ideas about prayer as a weapon, and you need to learn these hyper-spiritual prayers to target at certain demonic influences in certain places. And like we said when we went through the armor of God in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, prayer is not a weapon there. Prayer is how you communicate with 
with, with headquarters. To say that prayer is a weapon is like telling the, the guy on the battlefield that, that your walkie-talkie will do the same thing as your M16. There's a fundamental difference there. And like all theological fads, the spiritual warfare movement came and went. But like all spiritual fads, it left behind many stains on people and churches and parachurch ministries that it touched. Now here's a commentary on it. Jude verse 10. But these men revile, and the word is literally blaspheme, they revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals by these things they are destroyed gives you another mark of false teachers they deal in speculation and things they really don't know about and there is strong judgment for people who do that by the way, uh, you realize this was going on in the first century. This is still going on. And I would say to you, this now, right now, is the heyday for people who become famous and influential by making things up. It was a huge problem in the first century, but they didn't have the internet. All you have to do now is start a podcast and get yourself a YouTube channel and a website. Anybody can do that. And then just start publishing things that attract attention. Make them up. The, the grander, the better. The more obscure, the more followers you might get. False teachers just keep talking through their hats and speculating, making things up. It's nothing new. Oh, but wow. Jude had no idea how fast that stuff could flow these days. You take decades of... of shallow and inaccurate preaching and then you mix in the 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 internet and and we did kind of a a first run at let's see if we can cause worldwide panic remember if you're young this will be foreign to you remember y2k the year 2000 all the world's economies are going to come crashing down it was the the perfect storm for for paranoia and conspiracy theories and false teaching to 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 come together and it and it it made a mess of a lot of people i knew i know people who sold everything and moved to the mountains so they could survive on their own when the world collapsed and came back about february tails tucked between their legs and cold well that was a good first try now we've had COVID unprecedented license to distribute silliness and, and, the, and the really effective thing about COVID is that we really didn't know a lot of what we know now so you could just go any direction that you wanted to this is the heyday for false teachers. But it's not new. I can't help sharing a, 
a story that happened decades ago. I um, used to hear a guy on the radio who, um, it was, he, his, my drive time matched his radio uh, program, and uh, I, would, I would listen to it. And he, uh, he was continually harping on the sins that God forgot to mention in the Bible. One of them was the use of playing cards. Now, I'd grown up playing cards a lot. Uh, I didn't stop when I got saved. I've um, handled decks of cards many, many times. And uh, without becoming demon-possessed that I know of, well, he promised that he had a fact-filled pamphlet, he called it, explaining more. So, I wrote for it. I figured it might be interesting. I had never noticed spiritual repercussions in my life for playing cards. Now, back in those days, we had a quaint system uh, where we would use a pen and a piece of paper, write down what we wanted to say, put it in an envelope, and mail it away, and then wait for a reply. So, I did. And I got the pamphlet about a week later, the so-called pamphlet. The pamphlet was a one-page, kind of smudgy, mimeographed, single-spaced front and back page. It was just chock full of legalistic nonsense. And he, he sprinkled in a few Bible verses wrenched painfully completely out of their context. It had nothing to do with what he was saying. But there was one part that caught my eye. One thing in there was footnoted. It was the part where he claimed that each face card in the deck represents a specific demonic force. That's interesting. So I read the footnote. And I wrote it down, and I've saved it. The footnote said, quote, people who know, tell me so, unquote. (laughs) So, that was the only footnote I ever had to use for every paper I wrote through college and (laughs) seminary. People who know, tell me so. In other words, I made this, this thing up. That's exactly what they do. And that's a, that's a, laughable and pathetic example. But the point is, false teachers actually work themselves into thinking that lies and spiritual baloney are true. They're not necessarily um, knowingly lying to you. It takes discernment to figure out when they are. Now Jude gives his own commentary. He's talked about these old sins with new techniques in the same way, in the same way, in the same way. It just keeps going and it's going on now. And now his commentary, point number two, woe to them. Verse 11, woe to them. What does that mean? Well, the word woe is an imprecation of doom. If you know what, don't know what an imprecation is, there's your assignment for the day. Go home and look up imprecation or an imprecatory prayer. It means, the word woe literally means damnation. It's praying for someone to be damned. 
It is an interjection proclaiming doom. But Jude just doesn't fulminate against these teachers. He shows that they follow in a long line of enemies of God. And he's going to give you commentary. He says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, what does he mean by that? What is the way of Cain? Well, Cain was one of the sons of Adam and Eve. He disobeyed God. His deeds were evil. He followed in the ways of the evil one. He refused to face his own sin. And he sunk into a spiral of rebellion until he, he got to the point he became the first murderer. And he suffered for the rest of his life after murdering his brother. He's probably suffering for eternity now. You can read about him in Genesis 4. He's also mentioned in Hebrews 11.4 where he's the evil contrast to his brother Abel who was a man of faith. And he's mentioned in 1 John 3.12 where it says he is the one who was of the evil one. What about the error of Balaam? Balaam, most people say Balaam. Balaam was the prophet who hired himself out to say whatever people wanted to say, wanted him to say like send me your gift of a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars and that will be the seeds for your faith and you can get that thing that you that you want i mean the 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 health and wealth prosperity gospel isn't even thinly veiled for its source it is so blatantly anti-god and a corruption of the gospel. I can't believe people fall for it. Well, I can believe it because it says they do. Um, Balaam is an example of deceit and covetousness, con man, if you will, wrapped up in quasi-spiritual phoniness. If you want to find him in your Bible, Numbers 22 through 24. He's the one, by the way, to whom God famously spoke by way of his donkey. And the donkey had better spiritual discernment than the owner did in that situation. The error of Balaam is the idea of peddling spiritual teaching for a price. Now that's very different from uh, supporting those who labor in the word and teaching within the, the fellowship of the family of the body of Christ. This is the people marketing themselves and seeking wealth pursuing what the New Testament calls uh, filthy lucre. Cain just rebelled. Balaam was trying to make a profit off of it. What about the rebellion of Korah? Read about that one in Numbers chapter 16. This man named Korah led a group of 250 men. They were all leaders in Israel And they attacked Moses and Aaron for their leadership. The 250 were described as men of renown. Hence we know they were respected. It's said that they were representative of the entire congregation of the people. So do you see the pattern repeated again? To use Jude's terminology, these men crept in unnoticed. 
They were among God's people. They were considered credible among God's people. And that's how they could do so much damage. Korah and those who stood with him said that Moses and Aaron had taken too much upon themselves, that they had exalted themselves over the rest of the people. And men named Dathan and Abiram joined in to complain that Moses' leadership is going to get us all killed. That was their basic idea. Instead of realizing that the reason for Israel not being in the promised land yet was their own unbelief, they decided to blame the leaders that God had given them. Well, God was so incensed at the attack on the leaders that he had given to his people that he said he was going to destroy them all. Even God can speak in hyperbole. Moses interceded, and the result was that the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their immediate families. That would be an attention getter. And then the 250 who joined them were consumed instantly by fire from heaven, just like Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 9. The rest of the people were fleeing in fear. Oh, but they got over their fear because the next day, the rest of the people accused Moses and Aaron of being responsible for the deaths. So the, the people accused Moses and Aaron of being the problem. God kills those people, and the people say, you're responsible for those people being killed, Moses and Aaron. Logical, right? This time, again, God threatened to kill them all, and again, Moses and Aaron interceded for the people, and this time, God sent a plague among the people. Before the plague was stopped, 14,700 people died in addition to the ones who died in the Korah incident. Now here's the point. People like Cain, who won't listen to God's word, who won't deal with their own sin, and people like Balaam, who believe that they can speak for God on their own terms for a prophet, and people like Korah, who attack and try to undermine legitimate spiritual leaders, they are pictures, examples of people who hang out among true believers. But they are very bad, corrupting influences, and they are headed for severe judgment. So God put Jude here in our Bibles to help us learn the lesson from history so we don't need to get swept up into any of the same errors. Now, Jude isn't done. He piles on several more descriptions of the disgusting spiritual influence of those who infiltrate Christ's church with false teaching. Look at verses 12 and 13. I won't elaborate on these things, but here they are. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear caring for themselves. That's why I called this Hidden Reefs. I try to pull my titles from the text whenever I can. This one you had so many juicy ones that might get you more views online, but um, I stuck with Hidden Reefs. Justin Peters already used clouds without water. 
Uh, I'll let him have that one. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Every one of those word pictures describes something awful. Hidden reefs sink ships which snag on them. People like the ones that Jude wrote about are dangers in the church, even though you can't immediately see them, just like in the boat you can't necessarily see the reef before you hit it. Uh, they, they are um, feasting with you without fear, caring for themselves. Uh, the, the love feast was the early church's fellowship meal that they ate usually in connection with the, the Lord's Supper. Think church potluck, and you get a pretty good picture of what that is. And these meals are the cultural background for all the instructions that are in 1 Corinthians 11 about how to properly uh, do the Lord's Supper. But phonies corrupt the purity of gatherings like that. Like hidden reefs destroy boats, the guileless purity of true fellowship is ruined by hypocrites. Now get a load of the rest of this description. They feast with you without fear. They're confident in, <coughs> in their opinions. Never thinking of God judging them. They're constantly caring for themselves. They want to be part of the church because that can expand their sphere of influence. That's what's in it for them. The true motive for fellowship with the church should be worship and service to God. And how we can serve others. Not getting something for ourselves. And they're clouds without water carried along by the winds. We who live in this part of the country have a good illustration of this, this description. It's like what happens with a Boise area thunderstorm in the middle of the summer. Lots of wind, lightning, thunder, no rain. These people never really produce anything of value commensurate with their talk. All show, no substance, And like those thunderstorms, spiritual clouds without water sometimes leave actual fires burning after they do their initial damage. They're like autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. By the end of the harvest, the the tree has yielded absolutely nothing, so it's worthless, it's disappointing, not only fruitless, actually lifeless in the spiritual realm. So these trees are in a vineyard, torn out and destroyed and burned. That is the spiritual state, a spiritual fate, I should say, of a pseudo-Christian. But Jude still isn't finished. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up their shame like foam. They're not without impact. It's just that their impact is damage. They're like the refuse left behind from a hurricane. These people leave a mess wherever they go. And finally, Jude says, they, Jude says, they are wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. That was terminology used for shooting stars. You know, we've just finished a couple of days of the height of one of the biggest media, uh, meteor showers. Have you been out and looked at that? You no, know, neither have I. Uh, it, it's cold and dark when you have to go out and see those things. But you know what that is. This flash of light and then swallowed up into blackness. That's where they're headed. Now, 
Here's a really interesting section. In our schedule, Scott Basolo next week gets verses 14 through, I think, uh, 17 or something like that. 14 through 16, I suppose it is. And I don't want to steal his thunder, but I want you to see this because he's not done. He says in verses 14 and 15, and about these. In other words, there's more connection to the past. And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they've done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I can't wait for next Lord's day to hear Scott explain to us what that is all about. It's it's fascinating. And again, you will see the cohesiveness of everything in your Bible. I'm not going to slight anything um, that he will have to say to us from this pithy little letter. We'll get to it in due time. So without diminishing anything he has for us next week, I want to reach forward into the next verse after that and make sure that we know how to apply what we have learned today. Verses 14 through 16 is going to be a rich vein of truth that we will mine next week. But the application that I want for today comes first from the beginning of verse 16. It answers an important question. How can we spot people who are the ones who have crept in unnoticed? They are serving the interests of Satan in the church. It's pretty obvious. Beginning of verse 16. These are grumblers finding fault. Grumblers refers to the discontent shown with things in the church. Discontent with people who are the church. If you want to Serve the interests of Satan. Just grumble. Listen, this is, a, this is an attitude check. I mean, are we here for what's in it for us? Or are we here because God is worthy? Are we here to try to learn to become good enough that God will like us? No, we're here because we know we are completely alienated from Him and the only way we can be brought into relationship with Him is to have our sins forgiven and that's only through Jesus Christ. So we come together out of thankfulness to lift Him up, to give Him glory and to serve other people and to go out from this place and spread the good news so that the light can shine in an ever-darkening world. This isn't just a human club. This is the work of God. And we are His people. And He wants us to be tools in His hands. We are members of one another together. And the world will know that we're Christians by the love that we have for each other. Far from hidden reefs. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this little book, putting it 
in our Bibles. Thank you for all that it, that it teaches us. We pray that as the world darkens, that we will be thrilled and diligent to let our lights shine so that people may see the good works that you've prepared beforehand worked out in us and they might come to glorify you in the day of visitation. Thank you, Father, for your marvelous grace to us, that grace in which we stand. And we pray that you will get yourself much glory through Heritage Bible Church and through each of our lives. And we pray that this week, as even the world around us throws around the world, uh, the word thanksgiving, that that we will truly be givers of thanks for all of your goodness. Have your way with us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.